We are in the study of uh, the different religions, and uh, I pr- again appreciate David last week taking care of the evening worship service. I appreciate your prayers. You prayed for me while I was gone. The, um, a couple of weeks ago, we began the, the study on the Jehovah Witness, and, and you'll remember if you were here that that study uh, focused around Jesus and what they believed about Jesus, which in, uh, involved the Trinity. So there, for, we, t- we discovered that the Jehovah Witness denied the Trinity, which again would mean that they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. So they deny the Jesus that's presented in the scripture. So again, I would say to you that, that their, their understanding of who Jesus is is completely wrong. And because it is completely wrong, that any hope that's found in their Jesus is not the eternal hope that's found uh, through the Jesus of the Bible. You cannot create Jesus in your own image and, and say this is what you want him to be. Jesus is who he is. And it's a part, it's a part of our, our walk to discover as the Holy Spirit reveals to us who Jesus Christ is. All right. So tonight we're going to go and we're going to we're going to finish up the teaching on the Jehovah. Witness. We're not going to touch everything on Jehovah. Witness. You, you, you understand that. But I, I just want to deal on some of the major things. We, again, we dealt with Christ, and tonight we're going to look at the at uh, their teachings concerning salvation, eternity, and the end times. And uh, you say, well, that seems like we're doing two things that, are, that uh, seem very similar: eternity and the and the end times. And and they do tie together, but uh, but they are. You say, why would you focus on them? I would. I'm focusing on them because. That's what the Jehovah Witness focus on. If they come to your door, they're going to try to help you understand the end times, eternity, who's going to go to heaven, who's not going to heaven, where do the people go that are not going to heaven, uh, is there a hell? Or, you know, we can go right on down the list, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So, um, you probably are aware of terms like the 144,000, and you say, where do they get that? They get out of the book of Revelation. It's a number that's in the book of Revelation. And I know, I hope you're aware enough to know that, that not only does John say there's 144,000, but he takes great care to identify those 144,000 as 12,000 out of the, each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They have nothing to do with the Jehovah Witness. They have, actually have nothing to do with the church at all. Uh, they have to do uh, with, with, I believe, God restoring Israel to a time in the tribulation period and will use them once the church has been taken out uh, by the rapture. If you don't believe in the rapture, well, we'll we can deal with that at another time. Uh, but uh, clearly, John wants you to understand that the 144,000 have nothing to do, I could say to plainly, it has nothing to do with the church. Doesn't say, you know, 12,000 out of 12 major cities in the United States, and, you know, or uh, it talks about specific, he's specific, and it's clearly not the 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. The leader of the Jehovah Witnesses, though, took that teaching of the 144,000, appropriated it for himself, and then came up with a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight. That sort of revolves around that, okay? So let's begin by looking at God's Word, because as we do this, this study on comparative religion, my main task, not just to let you know what these religions teach, but to equip you with what the Bible teaches concerning their major teachings. When they come and they try to talk to you about this, or, or maybe you have the opportunity to talk to them about it, okay? So, let's begin, let's see what Paul reminds us about true doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3, here's what Paul writes for us. He said, As I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in, uh, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no what? No other what? I want to tell you, doctrine is important. Doctrine is truth. When we're talking about biblical doctrine. Now there's all kinds of doctrine. Doctrine is another word for teachings. We're talking about biblical doctrine. And Paul, he, I mean so many times in his, in his letters, he, he urged the church not to stray from the true doctrine. And again, that's what he's doing here. Verse 4 he goes on to say, Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. And verse 5 is a wonderful uh, message sometimes. Okay? Verse 6. For which some have strayed and have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And this becomes a confusion, I want to just say, not just of Jehovah Witness, but of those who have left biblical doctrine, they don't know what they're talking about. And I, I hope you're equipped enough with God's Word that you're not intimidated 
to talk with them about what the scripture actually says. Okay, and that, that, that would, hopefully, I'm talking to mature Christians here, and depending on where you are in that growth process, you may not be, yet be equipped to do that. You've got to know where you're at when it comes to this. But, but one, of the, one of the sad things of the evangelical church is that too many evangelicals who have been believers for years, for decades, don't even know what they believe and cannot defend the faith. And that, that's really a sad thing. Alright, so he says, verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So, I mean, that's, that's one of those little catch-all phrases. Okay? In verse 11, it says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So he begins by encouraging them to remain in sound doctrine. He ends this little portion of his letter by again bringing them back to the truth that's found in Christ Jesus, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the foundation, and you know this, it is the foundation of everything that we are. That's why, again, you don't have to know everything that that false groups teach. You need to know what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. And you can pretty much ask any group, what do you believe about Jesus? And from that, you can discern whether or not they're orthodox, whether or not they're biblical. Okay? If they vary in any way according to the scripture, Paul says that's another gospel. And he says, those who come and present you another gospel, other than that which you have received, let them be anathema. That term means damned. Let them be anathema. How important is it to have sound doctrine? How important is it to have the true gospel? Paul says it's everything. Because if you put your faith in a false gospel, in a false Jesus, and you follow false doctrine, then you have no hope. Anybody have that tonight? Let that be the foundation again as we think about this. Now let's look at these three areas that I'd like to share with you tonight. Uh, we begin with the doctrine of salvation. So I've given you a, a, a paper. Hopefully you've picked up that paper. that has some quotes from the Jehovah Witnesses. And again, it also has uh, reference places where you can go and you can look these things up. And you can, you can read the whole passage if you'd like to. But here, here the first we begin with the, the meaning of life and salvation. So, what does the Bible teach, or excuse me, what does the Jehovah Witness teach about salvation? That would be an interesting question. How is one saved? How can one be saved? Well, let's look at what it, and I'm just going to read this with you. It says, for the Jehovah Witnesses, the purpose of life is, the, is to earn the right to participate in God's future kingdom on earth. And to help others do so. Is that a troubling first sentence for you? It really should. Okay. Witnesses therefore focus on living a moral, acceptable life before God and witnesses and witnesses about their faith to others. So again, like when we talked about the Mormon church, when the Mormons that I know are very moral, very nice people. The kind of people you want as neighbors. And I would say to you, most of the Jehovah Witnesses I met, and I don't I haven't met as many Jehovah Witnesses as I have Mormon, but the ones that are practicing Jehovah Witness are moral people. They're good people. They're just deceived, and that's what you have to remember. Okay? And unfortunately, for many of them, they believe their morality or the goodness that they live and the good that they do is a means of acquiring God's favor so that God will allow them to be a part of his kingdom. Alright, we read on. Witnesses believe that salvation is made possible through Christ's death. Who made up for the sin of Adam. Now that's an important thing. They believe Jesus, who Paul says is the last Adam, actually came to make up for Adam's sin. But eternal life comes not simply from faith in Jesus, but from learning about Jehovah and obeying his requirements. Proving oneself to be God's loyal subject and listening to the kingdom message and acting upon it. So... In a few weeks, we're going to be talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And basically, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation is actually dispensed through the church. The church is the keeper 
of salvation. And you cannot actually be saved unless you are saved through the church. Now in the same way the Jehovah Witness teaches to their people. That if they're, going to, if they're going to enjoy God's eternal promise, it's through what I read to you right here. It's through keeping the teachings of Jehovah and going to the Kingdom Hall meetings and the Bible studies. How many of you have ever had a Jehovah Witness ask you, would you like to do a Bible study with me? They want you to do a Bible study with them. And we, remember we talked last time about that their, that their translation of the Bible is not the same as your translation of the Bible. Some very key things have been changed there. Okay, But they want you to do a, a Bible study. Uh, and I would say to you, if, if you ever get into that place, first of all, I'd say I wouldn't do it. I'm just going to throw that out to you. I wouldn't do the Bible study. Uh, I'm not going to discourage you from talking to them. Um, I like to tell people when they come to my door, if you give me the same amount of time to share mine as you share yours, we'll be okay. Most times they don't want to do that. The hardest thing to do is, that, is they, they have come with a message and a purpose. And just like with the Mormon missionaries we talked about, when they come to your door, you have to do your best to get the needle off the record. Okay? It's not, it's not a trick. It's, it's, it's an attempt to actually have a, a legitimate discussion, not an indoctrination session. Okay? Now, I told you that I, I, how important I believe doctrine is. That's true. But I don't believe the call of the church is to indoctrinate people in that way. We don't tell people just to come and just soak it in. We, we, you know, just, just to receive it. We, we want to share the truth. Why do we share the truth? Because the truth will stand on its own. Okay? So, when you look at the Jehovah Witness, they teach a works-based salvation. It is acquired by the things that they do. Okay? A part of that is those who have done the most. And this, is, this is actually is a division in the Jehovah Witness even to today. There are certain few that will earn the right to be the 144,000. There will only be 144,000. Now there's a problem with this because their leader had said that Jesus would return in 1914. That was his prophecy. Okay? He didn't come back. So what do you do when Jesus doesn't come back? Well then you do even what some out there evangelicals do like a man by the name of Harold Camping does. Who, who make these false proclamations that God told them that Jesus would return. You change your message. So no longer is it a literal return of Jesus Christ for the Jehovah Witness, but it is a spiritual thing. Which again, many of these false evangelicals who have put out this message that Jesus is going to come back here, there, and the other thing, and Jesus didn't come back. You know, the Lord told us, you don't know the day or the hour. First time someone tells you they know the day or the hour, you know they're, they have marked themselves. I'm, I'm almost convinced that if, 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 let's say, you know, God, God said that, that his son's going to come back May 14th of next year. If someone predicted, I just think God might change it to May 15th just to show I don't, you know, you know, I don't know. But be very careful of those who, 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 who purport those things. So you have a false prophet as a leader of the Jehovah Witness saying that Jesus would come back in 1914. And he would establish his kingdom. Now what does it mean to establish his kingdom? When you look at the Bible, what you read in the book of Revelation is that you read that Jesus is coming back. Nobody knows the date or the hour. That first he'll come back for his church. And by Paul says that his church will meet him in the air. After that time there will be seven years on this earth. A time of Jacob's trouble and the great tribulation. At the end of that time when it looks like that all hope is lost. Then you have Jesus who will literally return here on the earth. Following his return on the earth you will have a thousand year reign of Christ here on earth. A literal reign of Christ here on earth. Okay. They believe that that happened spiritually in 1914. And they believe that the earth, and I'm getting ahead of myself, they believe that the earth, it will be the dwelling place of most people who've ever existed. Well, so, that's what they teach about salvation. Basically, it is a works-based salvation. And it's almost sad because it seems like, and again, I said, for some people they will teach, and you'll read this. If you look it up, you'll read it. Some people teach that the 144 have already been sealed. It's a done deal. Others teach that it's still a possibility for you to get in there. And so some people work very hard so that if they can prove themselves more worthy of someone who is already there, think about this. It's almost like I'm going to bump somebody out that's already there. 
Okay, and in a moment we'll see what's it, that's important for them to be of the 144,000. But let's talk about what the Bible says about salvation. And again, this is to remind you of what you already know, but it's so important that we remind ourselves of this thing. What is the biblical doctrine of salvation? Well, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. And here's what Paul tells us about salvation. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Everybody got that? By the grace of God through faith. Who gave me the faith to believe? God did. So, for us, by grace, the grace of God, that is, you did not earn it, you did not, listen, you did not earn it, you could not earn it, nor did you deserve it. So even if you worked harder than someone else, you can't say, you know, Lord, I worked harder to get here, I deserve salvation, and -and so-and-so doesn't. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, goes on to say, and that not of yourself, it is what? It is a gift of God. If God... If you earned it, God's obligated to give it to you. Think about that. If you've earned something, the person that owes you the wages, he's obligated to give you those wages. We understand that. But when it comes to salvation, Paul reminds us that the, that the salvation that we've received from God is through his grace and it is a gift of God. You can't earn a gift. You can't buy a gift. You can't even deserve a gift. A true gift that's given with the right heart is given just because someone wants you to have it. And so that's how God gives salvation. Verse 9 tells us why. It says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not about how spiritual you are. It's not how much, how much you've done. It's not, not about how moral you or I are. God says that, that God did what he did in our life because that's who God is. And it is his gift because he's a giving, loving, gracious God. So what, what, what does Paul say? If I'm going to boast elsewhere, he says, if I'm going to boast, what's he going to boast in? He's going to boast in the cross. Why is he going to boast in the cross? Because he understands that at the cross, everything was paid so that he could be saved. Paul never boasted about himself. And Paul, he reminds us here that it's not about our boasting. It's not about you and I uh, bragging about who we are and how spiritual we are and that we are the saved. Verse 10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You say, wait a minute, there's the works thing, Pastor. Yeah, there's the works thing. But where's the works thing located? Where's it located? It's located after salvation. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that you and I who are his children might walk in them. And even those works, oh boy, this, and even those works are not what you're doing for him, but what he's doing through you. Then we jump ahead to eternity and he says, hey, I'm going to reward you for what I did through you. Crazy stuff. Good stuff. I mean, if salvation should be enough for us, but then he talks about the judgment seat where he's going to give us crowns for the things that he did for us and through us. And I think it's at that moment that the realization, again, will hit us. We say it all the time. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And I don't think that will ever hit us fully until we're standing before him or kneeling before him. Even after we've received our reward and we take off those crowns and we lay them at his feet. Because then we will know it's not about us. It never has been about us. It's about Jesus. How gracious and how good and how merciful he is. And what a wonderful gift salvation is. That's how salvation works biblically. Take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 4. By the way, as we turn to these things, I know you're aware of these things. I just want to remind you, give you some, some, some equipment as you go out there in the world and you deal with these various doctrines that are out there. Acts chapter 4. And look at verses 5 to 12. Here's what he says. He says... He's telling the story of what happened when Peter and John were arrested. It says, And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and, and scribes, as well as Annasai, priest Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as, as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them among them, By what power or by what name have you done this? They, they want to know where they got the authority and what power. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and people of Israel, and elders of Israel, if this day, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means 
he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you this day whole. This is the stone with the re- which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now listen to the last verse. This is the key verse. He said... Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They wanted to know what authority they did these miracles. And he said, listen, basically he's saying, you guys should know this. You're the elders, you're the teachers, you're the leaders of Israel. You should know this. And he quotes the Old Testament passage. He said, this is, the, this is the stone which the builders, which the establishers, rejected. And this stone that you've rejected, that's Jesus. That stone that you've cast out has become the chief cornerstone. And then he says, you need to understand there is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. What's the Bible teach that salvation comes by grace? What's the Bible teach that, that Jesus is not merely the means of salvation? He's not, he's not just one component of salvation. Let me put it that way. But salvation comes by his name. Salvation is from him. And as I said this morning, you can't know salvation and not know Jesus. Salvation is known through and by him. So the first thing we look at as Jehovah Witnesses is, is, is that a works-based salvation. They're not alone in this. Remember the Mormons taught the same thing. It was a works-based salvation. You had to do certain things. Okay. Now let's go on to the second thing. The doctrine of eternity. The doctrine of eternity. And there are several things that I have in this, in this section. This is, this is going to give you a whole lot of information hopefully. And, and here's, here's what they teach. <coughs> Jehovah, Jehovah Witness deny the existence of hell. Instead, they hold that the souls of the wicked will be annihilated. We'll talk about that in a moment. The dead that Adam brought, the death that Adam brought into the world is spiritual as well as physical, and only those who gain interest in the kingdom of God will exist eternally. Everybody got that? So to them, there is no such thing as eternal damnation or eternal hell. By the way, you understand, this teaching has found its way very prominently into the evangelical community now. There are people that are teaching this now. There is no hell. There is no eternal damnation. Okay? We read on. However, this division will not occur until Armageddon, when all the people will be resurrected and given a chance to gain eternal life. So again, we have a second chance happening here. By the way, I'll just throw out the name. Rob Bell teaches something so similar to this, it ought to amaze you. He teaches that there is no hell, and he teaches that people will have a second chance. And in his view, everybody who has a second chance, in that second chance, will respond. So he has a modified version of what I call universalism. Okay? But this is what the Jehovah Witnesses have taught for a long time. And by, Bell has been called, asked if he was Jehovah Witness before by others, but uh, of course he's not. But he has a very similar theology when it comes to this. So the division will not come between those who have eternal life and those who will be annihilated. You know what that means? Non-existent. Okay? When all the people will be resurrected and given a chance to gain eternal life. In the meantime, the dead are conscious of nothing. Everybody got that? It's another thing we'll talk about here biblically. They say that the dead are conscious of nothing. They're not even aware that they exist. So, how many of you ever heard of the, of the Seventh-day Adventists? The Seventh-day Adventists teach a doctrine called soul sleep. Which, again, says that those who have died are not aware of anything. Their soul sleeps. Okay? And Jehovah Witnesses teach a form of that also. That the dead are not aware of or conscious of anything. Right? Go on down the second paragraph there. Witnesses also have a slightly different view of heaven than the mainstream Christianity. Based on the re- reading of prophetic books like Daniel and Revelation, Jehovah Witnesses believe that the, that only a hundred. Well, I want you to get this where you get to hundred four. Only hundred forty-four thousand people will go to heaven and rule with God and Jesus. That's the significance of the 144,000. How many want to be a part of that 144,000? If that were true, how many would want to be a part of that 144,000? And if works-based salvation were true, how many of you work real hard to be a part of that 144,000? Okay? So, they teach that only 144,000 will go to heaven and rule with God and Jesus. 
So what happens to everybody else? What happens to the other believers there? The righteous? Well, they have an answer. The remainder of the righteous will enjoy paradise on earth, a restored garden of Eden in which there is no sickness, old age, death, or unhappiness. So, how many of you have ever had a Jehovah Witness come to you and say what they want to talk to you is about what the world's going to look like for eternity? It's, it is their main push in their watchtower. And they're awake. They want you to know that the, that the earth is going to be restored. And the very earth that you're on right now, most people, except for the 144,000, will spend eternity on this earth, a recreated Eden as, as it is described right here. By the way, I always like to throw these in there so you get them. There's another very prominent evangelical that, seems, that, that has changed his view on this and, and buys into this. His, his name is... Come on, someone's gonna be. His name is Jack Van Impey. Ooh. <laughs> you guys need to look at some of Listen, we don't listen to our own. See, I think this is our biggest problem. I don't believe that the Mormons are our biggest problem or Jehovah's Witness are our biggest problem. I think our biggest problem, we don't listen to our own. So our own teaches things that are, that, are, that, are, that deviate from Scripture. And so you have people like Rob Bell, who is, who is accepted by many evangelicals. I wouldn't let Rob Bell teach my dog how to lay down and get up. And I know he's popular. He is popular. He's famous, you know. But we can start going right down that list, okay? What you and I need to understand is that they teach these things. And we break, let me just break these down for you so you know. No hell. No hell. They believe in the annihilation of the soul for those who do not come to faith. And we've already described that their faith is not what we call Christian faith or Christian salvation, but those who are faithful to the kingdom. And when I say kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom of the places where they study are called kingdom halls. When they talk about the kingdom, they mean the kingdom of the Jehovah Witnesses. That's the kingdom. David used the term kingdom a little while ago in his report. He doesn't mean the same kingdom. He means the kingdom of God. One that Jesus talked about, that we are already a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already among you. All those things are true. But they, they would teach that, that there, there is no, no hell. They would teach that, that souls are annihilated. Okay? Um, they would teach, again, that, uh, that it's at Armageddon, that, that everybody's going to be separated. They would teach that the dead do not know anything. They, are unco- they, they, they have no consciousness. And they do not believe that all believers, even, in their own system, will go to heaven. But they believe in a recreated earth, a new Eden, a new paradise. All right? Now let's see what the Bible said. Let's break these four things down here. Let's begin with hell. Nobody likes to talk about it. Uh, seems like, again, it, it has become uh, untouchable in our day and time. Uh, and even to the place, again, as I would say, that, that some evangelicals deny the eternal existence of hell. But let's look at what the Bible said. Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. And again, I've only picked a couple of verses. We could look at several different things. But Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. And as you turn there, who do you suppose is talking now? Who is? Jesus. And who is he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the religious men who were actually spiritually dead. And look at what he says. Serpent, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? So does the Bible teach that hell exists? Yes, the Bible teaches that hell exists. There are different words that's used for the place of the dead throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, the term, the Hebrew term, is Sheol. And Sheol just speaks of the grave, the place of the dead. David even said in one of his psalms, If I go into Sheol, even your spirit is there with me. Okay? 
Jesus described for a Sheol, if you remember, in the, in, in the story of the prodigal son, when, when he told about the event of the prodigal son. And if you read that, you'll find he never called it a parable. Okay? And what he, what he talks about there is that Sheol, the place of the dead, prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was this great place. And one side of this place was paradise. On the other side of this place was a place called Hades. In paradise, they were in the bosom of Abraham, in great comfort, in peace. In Hades, they were in torment. And that will come up in just a moment about other things that they teach. But Jesus talked about hell. Jesus used the term hell. Um, the, the next verse I want you to look at is Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. And here's what he said. But I will show you whom you fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Jesus again speaking about hell. Jesus described hell as a place where the worm never dies and where the, 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 the fire is never quenched. Jesus talked about hell in the same terms that we, the Bible talks about eternal life. It says eternal hell. Matthew tells us, I believe it's Matthew chapter 24 where it says, But hell was not created for mankind, but hell was actually created for the devil and his angels, for the demons that fell with him. That's why God created it. But men who reject Christ will spend eternity in that place, according to what Jesus said. Jesus talked about hell a lot, if you read his writings. We know most of our doctrine about hell and the existence of hell and the reason that people go to hell... Because of what Jesus said. Directly what Jesus said. We have more writing about hell in the Gospels than we do in any of the other section of the Bible. And more of it comes from Jesus' own lips than from anywhere else. So now, does hell exist? Well, you have to answer the question. Do I believe Jesus? Or do I believe the groups that say that it doesn't exist? And I want to tell you, this is something I find very similar in almost every cult group that, that you look at. They all want to deny the existence of eternal hell. They set it aside. It doesn't exist for them. We're going to talk about the Eastern religions one night. You're going to see that there. Okay? No, if you think about it, even, even in the Mormon religion, you have different levels of heaven, but no teaching on hell. It's an incredible thing. Jesus taught about it. Is hell real? If I believe Jesus, hell is real. Okay. Second, second point here, the consciousness of the dead. Well, let's go to what Jesus talked about when he talked in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19. Well, let me just read verses 22 to 24. The, the whole thing is the story of the prodigal, I mean, of the, of the rich man and Lazarus, okay? 22 through 24. Remember I said the Jehovah Witnesses teaches that the dead have no consciousness. What did Jesus say about that? Well, let's see what Jesus said about that. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in what? And being in torments in where? Hades. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham. Isn't that incredible? In Hades, he could look and he could see Abraham. And he could see Lazarus. Sounds like someone who's conscious to me. Right? Goes on to say, And being torments, lifted his eyes, and he saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Why would someone who is unconscious require mercy and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger into wa- in water and cool my tongue now listen to this look saying for I am what for I am tormented in this flame do the dead are they conscious Jesus said that they were Jesus said that they were now I want to throw this out to you and I'm going to Oh, time doesn't allow me to do this. Maybe we'll do a little bit more of this. I just want to throw this out to you and I want you to think about this. How many of you have heard of the Apostles' Creed? I'm not going to ask you how many you hold to the Apostles' Creed. 
the Apostles Creed is limited in what it says. I, you need to understand that. Our, the basis of truth is not the creeds of any group. By the way, the, the term Apostles Creed is a misnomer. The Apostles didn't come up with the creed. The church did many, many years later. And in the Apostles Creed it says that Jesus descended into hell. That's what it says in the Apostles Creed. Okay, Such a misnomer. Where did Jesus go after he died on the cross? I think I'll do a whole sermon. I told Carrie I'd do a whole sermon on this. Where did Jesus die when he, after he died? Where did he go after he died upon the cross? According to his own words. What did he say, Cal? No, he didn't. He went to paradise. He went to paradise. He said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Where's paradise? Right here. He tells us in Luke. Abraham's bosom. Paradise. Why did he go to paradise? And why did he go there with the, with the thief on the cross? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, he went to set the captives free. Free from what? What were they held by? They were held by death until what happened? Until the first resurrection happened. You need to understand, nobody could rise from the dead until Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he set the captives free. So for you and I, who are this side of the resurrection, when we die, we don't go to paradise. Paradise is empty. Even what Jesus described here in Luke chapter 16, it no longer exists like this anymore. Because the paradise side of Sheol, the Abraham's bosom side of Sheol, has been vacated. Praise God. He set the captives free. And it does say that he descended. But he didn't descend. The misnomer of the Apostles' Creed is that he went to hell. He did not go to hell. I would even say to you that the un, unrighteous dead are not in hell yet. They're in Hades. And at the end of time, they will be taken from Hades. They'll stand before the great white throne judgment and then they will be cast into hell. Okay? But even where they're at now is torment. And they're tormented. And just as Lazarus was comforted in the arms of Abraham, as it describes here, so the rich man was in torment in Hades. So the doctrine of soul sleep, either by the Seventh-day Adventist or unconsciousness of the soul by the Jehovah Witnesses, is a false doctrine. Unless you believe them over Jesus. Okay? The, the third thing. On heaven and this earth. Well, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians. Are we going to go to heaven? We're going to live forever on this earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, it's already 7 o'clock. Okay, but if, if you have to go, I understand, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 4 through 8. And here's what Paul said. Oh, I love this stuff. This is good. Here's what Paul said. For we who are in this tent. What tent? Everybody pinch your tent. Okay? For who, we who are in this tent groan earnestly, de- desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by what? Life. Now, he who has prepared for us this very thing, who has also given us the, the Spirit as, as, as our guarantee... So we also are confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, to be absent from the body is to be where? Anybody know where that is? Heaven. Heaven. Not just 144,000 going to heaven. The redeemed get to go to heaven. Well, what about this earth? Well, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And look with me at verses 10 through 13. Here's what he said. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be... Therefore, since all these things will be 
dissolve. You want to talk about annihilation, it's not annihilation of the soul, it's annihilation of this place. Will be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will dissolve, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Okay? Then we're not going to be here. This will all be gone. Praise God! This will all be gone. Talk about global warming. Yeah, you know, so, so, well, and we, when you look when you look at what he says, we, again we we ask ourselves, what do we believe? The doctrine of men that comfort men, the 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 fables that men make up, or do we let the scripture speak for itself? It's very plain. And I would again say this to that Jack Van Impe. Now he uses the last verse to say, see, we're going to have this new heaven and new earth. We're going to have this new, and he wants to say, we're going to live on the same place. No, we're not. No, we're not. Alright, the 144,000. And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 7. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want you to know where it's at. Because the claim of 144,000. I've already mentioned this. So, just mark this in your study material. Who are the 144,000? Who are they? They are listed for you right here. 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes. They are, they, are, they are God's witnesses. But they're not the God's witnesses that began in 1914. They are God's future witnesses who will be here during that tribulation period. Alright, doctrine of the end times. Do we want to go on? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. In time. Let's look at Jehovah Witnesses. Said, a belief is that is is unique to Jehovah Witnesses is the, the eschatology events predicted in Revelation began, and I've already told you this, began when? In nineteen fourteen. That's when that's when Revelation sort of kicked in to being for them. This is when God gave Jesus his kingdom. Isn't that funny? God gave Jesus his kingdom. In 1914. Why? Because the leader of Jehovah's Witnesses said so. There's no, nothing significant that says that's the, that's the year he said it. Okay? So I wonder what Jesus has been doing all this time. This is when God gave Jesus his kingdom and Jesus had been ruling from heaven ever since. And this time, Jesus threw Satan and his demons out of heaven, which you'll read in Revelation chapter 12. But they say that actually happened in 1914. And this time, Jesus threw Satan and his demons out of heaven and down to earth, which is why, according to witnesses, the world has been getting progressively worse since 1914. Could they tie that to World War I? I'm sure World War I, World War II, and, and everything that's happened since. Okay? So Satan has, Satan has been in heaven up until 1914. It's, it's just... Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Progressively worse. To me, the worst the earth has ever been is pre-flood. Where the Bible says that the heart's imagination of all men only evil continually. Think about that. And what David's saying is true. The worst that the world's ever been, so far, so far, has been pre-flood. I believe there were literally millions upon millions of people pre-flood on this earth. And of those millions and millions of people, God found one man. Noah. And because God's a gracious God, I believe Noah, God allowed Noah and his family to be a part of that umbrella. Okay? But I want you to understand that. We, I don't know that we can conceive how horrible it was on this earth pre-flood. How does man get to that place? Yet, I think we're—I do think we're progressing more and more to that place. Okay, good point. Look, look at the second, the second uh, um, paragraph there. Jehovah's Witness will look forward to a theocracy in which all human governments are abolished and God rules the entire earth himself. That's very similar to what we believe in the sense that in the millennium we believe there's going to be a theocracy here, don't we? Jesus is going to rule and reign. Okay? Um, but they would not say Jesus, they would actually say Jehovah. Okay? Uh, this is expected to occur soon. Although witnesses once predict, predicted specific dates for this event, they now set, state that the Bible does not give a date for these events, but it provides evidence to show that we are living in the last days of this troubled world. 
Okay. Let's look at what the Bible says and then we'll close our time out together. Go to book of Revelation chapter 19. What's going to happen? And this is a whole sermon in itself, so we're just going to look at it very quickly. Look at verse 11 through 16. What's going to happen? Here's what he said. John says, Now I saw, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe of dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that he, with it he should strike the nation, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And he himself has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 7. And here's what it says. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. What's the Bible teach about eschatology in times, the term? Even within the church, we're not in agreement about when certain events happen. And, and those, to me, are a lot of in-house discussions and, and ponderings and things like that. But what it clearly teaches, and every Orthodox believer believes, is that, is that Jesus Christ is coming back again. That Jesus Christ is the one who will rule and reign. And when he comes, every eye will see him. Okay, According to, to John's uh, teaching in the book of Revelation, he comes at the beginning of a time that we call the millennium. And after he comes, he will rule on this earth. The prophet Isaiah spoke about that time. Prophet Ezekiel and Jeremiah all spoke about that time where a thousand years Christ would rule upon this earth. And you read John's revelation and he says that when Jesus comes, he immediately takes the false prophet and he takes the Antichrist and he casts him into the lake of fire. But you know what he does? He takes Satan and he binds Satan for a thousand years. And after that thousand years, the scripture says that Satan is released. And when Satan is released, then, then he will lead the nations against Christ. blows my mind to think these people who have been there for a thousand years under the reign of Christ think that they can do anything to him. But they're deceived. You know what that tells me? Just because people are in the millennium does not mean that their hearts are changed. Just because they're in the presence of Jesus does not mean that their hearts are changed. One of the things about the millennium that I think that shows us is there are so many people say, you know, if the environment was just good, if the environment was perfect, if if governments were perfect, if, if all these things were perfect, everybody would believe. Well, the millennium teaches us opposite of that. Men's hearts are corrupt. And unless they come to Christ, whether it be Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation, or millennium, unless they come to Christ, they cannot be changed. God tells us what's going to happen at the end time. And after Jesus rules for a thousand years, Satan will be released. Then Satan, the Bible says, will be cast into the lake of fire. And then we have the great white throne judgment. And the Bible actually says, and the graves will give up their dead. And Hades will give up its dead. And the seas will give up their dead. And they will all stand before the great white throne. And after the great white throne, it says this, And those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, where Satan, the false prophet, and the, the Antichrist are. And it says, and then it says this, it says, And death and Hades will also be cast into the lake of fire. All those things will be gone. And we move into eternity. Then he starts talking about a new Jerusalem. In our eternal dwelling place. It comes down out of heaven. The Bible tells us what we need to know. It is the attempt of men. To either comfort their own consciousness. Or I would say in many cases to manipulate even millions. To follow them in their false teachings. As with the Mormons. Many Jehovah Witnesses are deceived. 
That's what they've been taught all their lives. And they're walking in deception. They believe it to be the truth. And the only one that can cut through that deception is the Holy Spirit. And the only way that he's chosen to do that is when God's people walk in his truth and his power. And as God gives opportunity, we share that truth with these people. There's such a myriad of of teachings out there. It boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. But there is a distinct difference between pure doctrine and the false doctrines that are taught by the religions of men. That's the point of tonight. That's the point of this whole series this summer. I want you to be equipped. And you don't have to remember. You don't have to remember what all these different groups teach. You don't have, that's not the purpose here. What you need to remember is what the truth is. What the truth is. And you go out there equipped in the truth. And you don't have to be worried about that which is false. The truth will always stand on its own. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for tonight. And thank you for your truth and your word. And Father, as we know what your word says, and we do not have to fear those who would speak and those who would teach, those who would proclaim things that are clearly contrary to your word. Lord, let us be a people who are equipped. Let us be a people who know the word, who are led by the Holy Spirit, who walk and live in the truth, and who are always ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Thank you for the promise of your Spirit who indwells us. And when that time comes, as we walk in you, you will give us the words we need to say. Thank you for that. And thank you for the pure truth that we don't have to go to the left or the right. We don't have to vary in any way. But we can walk in you every day of our life. So Lord, as we go out into the world this week, let us do that. Let us not be out there looking for confrontation. But let us walk in your truth. And as you provide the opportunity, let us share in love the truth with those who don't have it. Thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name. Amen.